As always, how thankful we each are this evening that we can assemble and gather in the way that we are. We just sang about an unclouded day. And I know as each of us are so excited about the thought of pleasant weather when it does come our way, how much grander and how much more magnificent it is to contemplate the eternal unclouded day that awaits the faithful. It is true tonight as we come together, we're always thankful for our membership and the visitors that do come our way. And we trust and it's our strongest desire that our period of worship will be exactly in accordance with what pleases God. He is the object of our worship and tonight, as we open His Word, I would invite you to keep that place marked that was read for us by Cale just a moment ago. The fifth chapter of James, those verses 14 and 15, bring before us a passage, a text that no doubt is often the source of interesting discussions and contemplations. Tonight, as we revisit that ancient passage, I believe we'll be encouraged in so many ways as you and I develop even more maturely in our modern day, of course, faith in Jesus Christ. As you notice, the particular slide, of course, is this one, sickness and the prayer of elders. And that alone points us to the passage before us. And as we make some introductory comments about it, those comments will need to, in fact, be of the following form. You and I know so easily and so powerfully that the Word of God, as you and I appreciate it, is something that was marvelously brought before us and has been preserved through the years by the amazing and providential hand of God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. And the word pure there identifies the thought of the fact it's tried. Every word of God is as the God of heaven intended it to be. And by that token, and in that way, we even realize that when passages do pose a bit of challenging character and when there are some difficulties attached to it, it only encourages us to note the commentary of the Scriptures and let God tell us what it is He intends us to understand. I hope tonight as we look at this passage, you'll notice that the book of James, a little five-chapter book, not too far off the end of the New Testament, but in this book we find a masterpiece of practical Christian living, don't we? Many times authors have commented as to that character of the book of James, some have even called it the New Testament book of Proverbs. Perhaps there's a lot to that consideration. Have you ever given thought to just a few of the things that James brings before us? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. You recognize that from James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. That pure religion touching the fact our helpfulness to widows and orphans and the character of keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Chapter 3, the matter of the tongue. Isn't that a very practical and useful thing? That you and I should always strive to utilize our lips and the character of our voice, to do so in a way that's in harmony with that which would please God, and never to allow that tongue to be used in a way to cause others to stumble. Those are just a very small sampling of so many of the things that James would have us consider. Maybe in light of all of that, we go to one step further. And we start now looking at the text per se. Please find with me James chapter 5. And we're going to cast a spotlight on verses 14 and 15 of that chapter. James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. As you locate that particular passage, I have selected a few introductory comments that might prepare us 
to look at the extended nature of that which we do find in those verses. And I think it would be wise for us to recollect perhaps as early as verse 11. As James nears the close of this book, he begins to highlight some important and impressive features of endurance. You might keep in mind with me that the book of James was written by the gentleman named James, who was the Lord's half-brother, and also it was written to individuals who were called those that were scattered abroad. It would appear to have been written to Christians who themselves, because of persecution, had found themselves in need of fleeing various circumstances. It was written to people who were suffering, individuals who had been displaced, individuals who found themselves often in unpleasant and in unfavorable circumstances. No wonder verse number 11 then says, Behold, we count them happy which endure... Among all things else, James reminded these Christians as he came near the close of the book, regardless what the circumstances may be that surround you, it's vital that you endure. Didn't Jesus say it back in Matthew 10 verse 22 that they which endure to the end shall be saved? You and I know so easily then the impressive need for faithfulness even in the circumstances of difficulty. Verse 11 goes on to say, "Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And immediately he calls to our attention the recollected scenes of the days of Job. There was one who, of course, suffered mightily. He wasn't aware himself of the reason for it. He didn't know about that conversation between the wicked one and the God of heaven. He didn't know anything about the background. What he knew, however, was this, that the suffering that had brought upon him nonetheless did not set aside the needfulness of remaining faithful. There were times when Job struggled. There were times when he found himself in dire circumstances and his friends were no help. The fact remained, though, that when we reached chapter 38, Job was in a position to see a new day dawning on his horizon because the Lord addressed the circumstances and helped him appreciate mightily the scenes of those times. Maybe with those in mind, you and I revisit this issue concerning endurance. Now, at the top of that slide... You'll notice that matter of remaining faithful touches what verse 12 brings before us as well. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Too much words, too many words can sometimes be one of our downfalls, isn't it? We don't let... The yea stop at yea, nor do we let the nay stop at nay. We try to expound and elaborate sometimes when perhaps that's not the best thing to do. James admonishes his hearers, those to appreciate very clearly that the God of heaven has affirmed wrong and right, and even when it comes to swearing, don't do it in any form. That ought not be a part of the language that you and I utilize. The swearing of which he spoke now was calling oaths upon things, as it related to needful, or rather needless, consideration of oaths. It wasn't anything like a modern-day scene in a court where one would take an oath to tell the truth and nothing else. But here are those oaths, and Jesus had referenced that back in Matthew 5, didn't he? 
as James encourages his hearers relative to this endurance, touching even the matters of speech, it now brings us to verse 13 and following. I might ask you to notice a series of questions are now asked, and those are very profound and in some cases challenging. As you come near the bottom, let's begin to notice, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Verse 13. It begins by asking, Is any among you afflicted? That word afflicted carries with it in the ancient text the matter of hardship. It carries the thought of suffering. It carries with it difficulties, and very noticeable difficulties certainly. James asked the question, Is any among you afflicted? Is any among you of a disposition to appreciate your in suffering moments and your in times of challenging nature physically? Did you notice what his reply was? If you find yourself in that circumstance, he says, let him pray. It's rather interesting sometimes to think about the human predicament and sometimes the human approach. Maybe our first idea is to complain. Maybe our first idea is to cast blame. Maybe our first idea is to make ourselves out to a person of pity. None of that's what James affirmed. By inspiration, he said, if you find yourself in this position, the first approach ought to be to turn to the avenue of prayer. Tonight, we've done that together collectively, haven't we? And I know that as each of us pray individually, we often rely upon the encouragement and the strength available through that avenue. No wonder as you think about this avenue of prayer, doesn't it bring to our minds some of the statements of the Master? In Luke 18, 1, namely that men ought always to pray and not to faint. You know with me that as we sojourn through this life, we may well find ourselves in weary circumstances. Our burden can seem so very difficult to, 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 to carry. Might we say, in order that we faint not, may we always pray. However, that was not the only question. Again, notice the second one. Is any merry? Now it's the opposite side. Maybe you're not particularly in a time of suffering. Maybe everything is well. Maybe you find yourself in favorable circumstances. Things are well at home. They're well at the church. They're well even at your place of employment. Notice what he replies this time. Let him sing psalms. That carries the thought of praise. Let him offer praise. Let him sing praise. Interesting again, isn't it? Even when times are good, there is still the need to remember the source of the blessings that have made it good. Isn't that so? Goodness doesn't just happen by itself, does it? And that takes us back to the opening chapter of this same book, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Even in times that are good, may we always have that thankful disposition, a desire to express our heartfelt gratitude to God who has allowed it to be that way. The notion then of those two questions bring us now to the text to which we'll focus our attention the remainder of the time tonight. The questions are by no means finished. Verse 14, Is any sick among you? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. We notice that in light of our previous observations, those questions were easy to understand. One who is afflicted, one who is merry, we had some instruction as to the proper disposition in reply to each one of them. Well, now we come to another question. Is any sick? Verse 14. Isn't it still remarkable to contemplate the nature of the usage of the word sick? Is any sick among you? And you and I realize that seems to be a matter that's rather common. But in addition to that, notice what was stated as the correct reply. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then we have this assurance. May I ask you to notice? The prayer of faith shall save the sick. He didn't say might save, could save, perhaps save. He said shall save. And then he went on to say the Lord shall raise him up. And then finally... And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, I'm sure many of us have reflected often on a passage like this one, maybe this particular one, as it related to previous matters easy to understand. And now we come to this one. That seems a bit more challenging, doesn't it? Did this then mean that if you or I become sick, we should call for one of our three elders, maybe all three of them, and they need to bring oil with them. And they need to anoint you or I as sick in one way or another. And then the assurance of God's healing prayer of ministry. Is that what this asserted? Is this a matter to be understood in that way? If so, we certainly need to understand that. If it's not, we need to appreciate perhaps what was taught here by James. As we come to the close of that slide and motivate our way to the next one. Let me ask you to notice several comments, observations, if you will. I have listed them one by one, and we shall only look at five of them. But I believe as we develop all of them, we shall find that they touch all the features of this particular passage. The first thing goes with that question asked in verse 14. Is any sick among you? Don't you find it terribly intriguing to at least reflect upon the commonality of sickness? I use that as the first concept. And might we always observe that the occurrence of sickness is not only amongst the ungodly, it's not only amongst the wicked, but even those that are faithful are afflicted with sickness. Even those that are faithful are afflicted with health issues and problems, aren't they? And that includes, of course, many of us within the confines of this building tonight. We know that sickness isn't just reserved for a selected few. I've even asked you to comment that whether it be Old or New Testament, the prevalence and the commonality of it is a matter that seemingly is etched all over the sacred pages. What about a few Old Testament examples first? You remember Hezekiah. We have his record in Isaiah 38 as well as 2 Kings 20. In each of those places we find an extended discussion about a man who as king had done a rather noteworthy job, far better than many who were his predecessors and far better than many that will be his successors too. But the fact is he had a boil 
and that boil developed into a sickness. And in fact, the God of heaven informed him through the prophet Isaiah, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Hezekiah was soon going to die. The sickness that had developed in him had brought to the point of the actuality of death. We all remember, though, what Hezekiah did. He began to pray. In fact, he prayed earnestly to God, and God answered that prayer by granting him 15 additional years. But do we notice in passing, there was sickness even, of course, in regard to Hezekiah. In addition to Hezekiah, what about that son of the Shunammite in 2 Kings 4? You remember there that the prophet Elisha had come to this particular house and they had received him so warmly. They invited him every time he was passing through the neighborhood to stay. At the time, she didn't have a child, but due to the blessing of God, as it was stated through Elisha, she bore a son. However, it didn't seem to be too awfully long, in which the record then quickly tells us the boy's head began to hurt. Oh, it began to hurt excruciatingly so, and in fact, his dad told him, run to the house. One of the next verses tells us about the boy's death. We don't know what the ailment was. The text doesn't say. But he became ill. So serious it was that it took his life. As you and I think about sickness, we could just as easily come to the New Testament and comment with respect to at least a few. Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever in Matthew 8, verses 14 and following. We also remember that lady who had done so much good, Dorcas, in Acts chapter 9. She had touched the lives of so many as a person, a servant of the God of heaven. She made clothes for them, assisting them in that way that was available to her. But the text informs us that she passed away. Many that were very saddened by it. Ultimately, the news came to Peter, and of course, Peter ultimately raised her. Isn't it amazing to reflect upon sickness both then and now? As you think about Dorcas, I chose only one more, though that isn't by any means the only other one that might have been listed. What about Epaphroditus in Philippians 2? There was a gentleman who had invested so much of himself for the well-being and welfare of the church in Philippi. They had heard about the fact he was ill. They had heard, in fact, the seriousness of it, and they were very concerned about him. Paul even went so far as to say he was sick nigh unto death. He was near death. As you and I think about all those sicknesses, I would perhaps ask all of us to at least be mindful of the fact that we too, if you haven't had health issues or problems, don't be too alarmed or surprised if at some point in life they become a reality for you. That seemingly is the way that things so often progress in these physical bodies, isn't it? But as you think about that, a second lesson might immediately be this one. At the bottom of that slide, isn't it amazing that on this occasion, a special mention is made of this. The elders were to pray over the person that was sick and to anoint that person with oil. And immediately that brings to our mind a host of questions, I'm sure. The first thing I would invite you to notice, what about this issue of prayer? We are assured, are we not, both in that ancient era as well as in our modern day, that prayer is an effective thing for those that are children of God. 
Look at a few passages, one later in this same chapter. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you and I as Christians can believe anything in the Word of God, we certainly can have confidence in that assertion. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, that person who is godly and devoted to the cause of the Master and is a faithful child of His, is promised by God that God will hear the prayers of that individual. In 1 Peter 3, verse number 12, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. That's powerful, isn't it? We can have the confidence then that your prayers and mine, those of His children, those who are members of His family and of His body, He hears their prayers. In Revelation chapters 5 and 8, it's described on that occasion as those prayers ascend up and encircle the actual throne of God as sweet-smelling incense. That's a very moving and compelling thought, isn't it? The effectiveness of prayer. As you think about that avenue of prayer, you'll notice, though, that wasn't the only thing these elders were supposed to do. They were supposed to anoint with oil. Almost immediately, our mind races to occurrences in the Scriptures when oil was used in a number of ways, and it would appear, as far as I was able to tell, that all of the usages of oil fell into one or the other of two categories. You'll notice at the bottom of this slide, I've tried to list them very briefly. There were occasions when oil was used symbolically. By that I mean it was used in a coronation, or it was used as a symbol or a sign of something. Perhaps a case in point, 2 Kings 9, verse number 6. In that ancient day, you remember the prophet Elisha was commissioned by the God of heaven to anoint Jehu as the next king of the people of Israel. What methodology or what approach did Jehu use to, to, or what did Elisha use to anoint him? It says he anointed his head with oil. You can just imagine as Elisha came and made available some oil and poured it on Jehu's head. And that oil was a, sim, a symptomatic, a symbolic matter of his selection and choice as the next leader, the next king of Israel. That was but one example. Many others might be listed. But the other particular usage appeared to be medicinal. That ancient olive oil was frequently utilized in a way that brought about some medicinal or therapeutic value. For instance, in Luke chapter 10, in verse 34, you and I recall the Good Samaritan and the record of what happened to him. You may remember that that individual who in fact had fallen among thieves what was stated about what the Good Samaritan did to him? Among other things, he poured oil on his wounds. Now, it would appear that that oil had a medicinal value. It served a purpose for assisting in the healing of the physical wounds. Maybe as you and I come back to James chapter 5, what usage does the oil have here? The elders were to use it to anoint the person that was sick. Was the usage symbolic or was the usage medicinal? That's a good question. Perhaps the goodness of that question might lead us to the top of the next slide. On this occasion, as you and I think about the kinds of sicknesses, and please notice the very broad use of that word, sickness could include anything from a broken toe, some interior issue like a heart problem, perhaps cancer, 
some other scene like a matter with the brain or otherwise. Now, there are times for scratches and scrapes that oil might be beneficial. Oil wouldn't do much good for heart disease. Oil wouldn't do a whole lot of good for interior cancer. Oil wouldn't have much effect for some kind of brain tumor. As you and I think about all those things, it would appear on this occasion, given the broadness of that word sick, that the usage appears to have been symbolic. Those elders, as they prayed and utilized this oil, it was a symbolic character reminding that they were making appeal unto God and they were petitioning Him for assistance in this matter. It would appear the oil didn't have any medicinal value of, it, of its own nature. But as that observation perhaps is stated, it does bring us to number three. There's an amazing assurance given to this passage. Please note its wording again in verse number 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Let us ask, so what is it that is asserted to save the sick? It's not the oil. We might note that. The medicinal value is not attached to the oil. It's attached to prayer. It's the prayer of faith that is asserted to be the, the thoroughfare through which the sick shall be saved. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. Maybe in light of that, isn't it interesting to contemplate the other particular features? Verse 15, The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. We noted a moment ago that that oil appeared to be a symbolic reference to the power of the one who could heal. And you'll notice that it was the Lord that was asserted to heal to raise the one up. In addition, there is something said about forgiveness. Into verse 15. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. About the middle of that slide, as you and I think about the forgiveness of sins, we're quick to observe the fact only God can do that. That was even asserted in Luke 5.21. Even the Jews understood nobody could forgive sins but God only. He's the only one. Because sins are transgressions of His will and of His law, only He then can declare forgiveness of such things. But maybe that thought helps us appreciate this. It seems to me it'd be wise not to read more into verse 15 than what the inspired text put before us. It says, And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. You might know that is stated after the Lord will raise him up. So after this person is healed, he would have opportunity to come before a congregation and make a confession of sins, just like you and I would appreciate today. It says again, The Lord will raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. All the statements you and I have about the characteristics of things in this present gospel era is that forgiveness takes place conditioned upon repentance and confession. And there seems to be nothing in this verse to set that aside. We would thus conclude, it would seem, that this person would then come forward making confession once he's healed. And just like you or I today, that congregation, the elders thereof, could make petition to, to heaven on his behalf. But maybe with that as preparation, we do come to the two final remarks. What is clearly to be concluded about the nature of this healing? 
I've entitled it as follows. We find that there was clearly a miraculous matter to this. I've entitled it a miraculous work for confirmation. Did you notice with me that as these events unfolded, what was the sick person to do? He was not to call the doctors. He was not to call the physicians. He was not to call the pharmacists. He was told to call the elders. Those who have no expertise in medicine, those who may well have very little, if any, particular knowledge of it. All the while, isn't it then a clear thing that we have before us Comments I've tried to state as follows. Doesn't this bring to our mind other New Testament verses that speak about the miraculous capability of healing? I would invite us to consider 1 Corinthians 12. In that chapter, there are nine spiritual gifts that are listed. Nine of them. And one of the very first ones is the gift of healing. There were those in the first century upon whom the apostles had laid their hands, and these individuals had the power to heal somebody. They had the power to, in fact, set forth the nature of this particular work of the Holy Spirit through the matter of healing. And you'll notice that that particular feature would appear to be the very thing that was able to take place here. You call for the elders. And you'll notice in light of their prayer, and again, their anointing of this oil, we understand that it says they were assured that the sick would in fact be saved, he'd be healed. Well, that's the very kind of thing that that miraculous gift of healing was able to accomplish. It's the very same matter. Perhaps at that point, you and I could then observe miracles occupied an amazing role in the matter of confirmation in the New Testament pages. Before that occasion when, of course, the inspired word was fully completed, miracles were an unbelievably powerful matter to confirm the authenticity of the speaker. There's a particular verse, a set of verses I would invite you to consider with me. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1 for just a moment. Verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 2. As we give some thought to the matter of miracles, including the issue of healing, notice the way that it's stated here. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them sleep. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken unto us, uh, spoken by the Lord and was, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. Now may I invite you to notice it says this word was confirmed. How was it confirmed? Verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. And in that passage, we have this description of the purpose that miracles served. It served to bear witness to the message that those individuals delivered. Before they had a Bible to which they could turn in its completeness, someone would arrive in the neighborhood like Paul or otherwise, and they'd begin preaching. How did you know whether the person was preaching the truth or not? Among other things, you could appreciate his capability to work miracles. 
to heal those that were sick, those that were near death, those that were blind, those that were lame or otherwise afflicted. Could it be then that this book of James closes with this observation? To those particular Christians scattered abroad, if any of you are sick, you call for the elders. They'll bring oil, they will anoint and pray over you. And one way you'll know that they are from me, the sick will be healed. Could it be that that was a circumstance that was a critical element in time as it touched the nature of these dispersed Christians and the blessing that they were able to feel by virtue of the message of the book of James? Well, as you think about it in that way, one final comment. We do realize certainly that the age of miracles is no more. There are no miracles like that today. We have that assurance in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. We are told on that occasion, where there's prophecies, they'll cease. Where there's tongues, or rather, where there's prophecies, they'll fail. Where there are tongues, they'll cease. Where there's knowledge, it shall not be any longer. Now, that was supernatural knowledge. That was the capability, thus, of the speaking in tongues. There was the capability that went with that great character of the spiritual gifts. But we're asserted then that that was to end. We no longer have access to those things any longer. At this point then, you appreciate with me that the particular blessing by which this came in James chapter 5 is not available to you and me today as that assurance that came with a miraculous measure. But it does lead to one last comment. There appears to be something else about this. There appears to be something else that's very intriguing. We've just now studied that miracles, of course, were limited in time. When the Holy Scriptures were completed and the fullness of that had been confirmed, the age of miracles ceased. Not only does the New Testament assert it, the Old Testament foretold that they would end. But the other thing that appears to be new about this is it appears that this particular promise closing the book of James was limited geographically. Now let me spend a moment and, and try to illustrate why it appears that that's the case. We mentioned earlier in the lesson tonight that there were many sick people in the New Testament. We listed them earlier like Dorcas, Epaphroditus, Timothy. I have quickly asked you to notice all of them. Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, 23, remember he had a stomach problem. Well, if he had access to this, why didn't he just ask the elders of the church in Ephesus where he preached to bring some oil, anoint him, pray over him, and he'd be assured that that would be taken care of. But that never happened. In fact, Paul didn't tell him to do that. Maybe another example. In Acts 20, verses 17 and following, we know there were elders in the church in Ephesus. So we know there were elders there. And that's exactly where Timothy preached. But never did Paul or never, never did Paul tell him to just call for the elders and have them pray over him. That, of course, could be extended. When Dorcas, you remember, in the scene of Acts chapter 9, when she, of course, reached the time that she passed away, Peter never told her, never did those individuals that knew her before she died assert, why don't we call the elders and have them pray over you? And that wasn't done. What about Epaphroditus? In Philippians chapter 2, remember the church in Philippi had elders. Why didn't he just call for the elders to pray over him? 
and anoint him with oil and rest upon a promise of a verse like this one, may I submit it appears it wasn't available to him. It would seem that this in James chapter 5 was a promise to these individuals wherever they happened to be. And it was directed as a measure informing them of the inspired nature of this book that James had just written. Perhaps that is an interesting way of viewing the limited nature of that geography. One other example that seems to be a very interesting one is the very bottom of that slide. It seems intriguing to me that as the book of 2 Timothy closes, Paul makes a very incidental reflection on a gentleman named Trophimus. And he simply says, Trophimus was left sick at Miletum. Question, if Trophimus had access to something like this, or better yet, if Paul by inspiration had access, why didn't Paul tell Trophimus to call for the elders and to pray over him? Apparently, Trophimus didn't have access to that. That appears to be the conclusion. As we reach near the close of the lesson tonight, we've looked at these five observations. And these final sets of comments I'd like to utilize to finish our discussion. You may notice in particular, we have learned that James chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, is of course an inspired part of Scripture. It is a matter that brings to us the appreciation of the power of that first century era. But of course, as always, we have to be mindful that what involved miraculous measure doesn't still exist for you and for me today in terms of all of its promise. Rather, God is able to bring things about in a different way. The lessons we've seen then are these. There's a commonality and a prevalence of sickness and illness. We also highlight along the way the power of prayer, and the fact those elders had to bring oil. Thirdly, we noticed the assurance that went with the healing and the promise of forgiveness that would then come following that healing. Fourthly, this clearly was a miraculous consideration. And finally, we learned it was impressively limited both in time and in geography. That means that as you and I seek to apply it today, we can rely thoroughly on prayer. The prayer of those that are faithful, be they elders or otherwise. We should in fact consider it a blessing to be able to ask for fellow brothers and sisters to pray for us. Elders are always happy to do it, but any other faithful brother or sister would be of course as well. We shouldn't expect elders to bring oil. We shouldn't expect them to anoint in this way, for this again was limited to that day and time, and even to just that area. You and I have access, of course, to the marvelous power of God. Verses 16 and following still tell us, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I hope we each can then avail ourselves of that avenue of prayer, but you may notice again that's for faithful people. And if you're not faithful tonight, God hasn't promised to hear your prayers. He hasn't given you any assurance that He will. Several verses, in fact, apparently indicate that He won't. May I ask, why, why do you want to continue in that condition? Why not come before the God of heaven tonight, making an open pursuit of that which is His will? You need, if you're not a Christian and never been one, why not take care of that tonight? You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins and confess His name as the Son of God and then 
submissively and joyously be baptized. If we could help you in that way, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a Christian, but at this moment you know that all isn't well, in fact, you have slidden from your faithfulness, but you know you want to come home. Just like the prodigal son, in wisdom you want to come back home, the place where you know faithfulness dwells. And if we could help you do that, we'd pray to God with you and for you. And as we do that, He's promised then, upon your confession and repentance, to forgive you those things. Tonight, as we close this lesson, I hope that if there's one or more in the audience that would have need to make a public response, you'll do so at once. While together we stand and while we sing.